welcome or welcome back to the Just Eat Normally podcast for eating disorder recovery with me, Dr. Rachel Evans. I am a psychologist, hypnotherapist with a PhD in the psychology of eating and specialist training in eating disorder recovery as well as personal experience of going through an eating disorder and coming out the other side, which makes me super passionate about what I do. And in every episode, as with my one-to-one clients, I'm bringing you academic knowledge, information and theories, as well as therapeutic skills and personal experiences, be that mine or experiences of my guests, for a unique perspective on eating disorder recovery. So join me on this podcast as I speak to fellow experts in eating disorder recovery, eating disorder survivors with inspiring stories, and also throw in some bite-sized solo episodes with recovery tips or new ways for you to think about things. The goal of this podcast is to give you food for thought, to shift your mindset, to boost your motivation, and to help you find your own version of normal eating which will allow you to live a truly nourished life. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Just Eat Normally podcast. Today I'm here with Sophia Purcell, who has suffered from anorexia nervosa since her late teens, but she wasn't officially diagnosed until the summer of 2017, which is more than a decade into her eating disorder. She also has a mild form of cerebral palsy, which I will ask her to explain more um, about later, so in case you don't know, uh, but it's a congenital condition that often affects movement, coordination, balance, muscle strength, flexibility, and tone. And at present, there's not much research into the relationship between eating disorders and disabilities. As someone who has firsthand experience of both, Sophia wants to do whatever she can to raise awareness, encourage others to seek support, and hopefully make treatment more inclusive and accessible. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to say in way of introducing yourself and kind of what you do um, today? Um, well, yeah, as you said, um, I have had anorexia for over a decade and I also have um, a mild form of cerebral palsy. But in terms of, you know, the rest of my life, I... Um, I am currently working as a copywriter, um, but I have been a primary school teacher. I used to teach reception um, for a number of years. Um, I've also worked as a journalist in London. Um, uh, Yeah, so, and I've done, um, I've got a master's in education and uh, an English degree as well. So it's a little bit of background. Yeah, so you haven't let these things stop you, but also you recognise that, could have been easier for you in getting help for both yeah. things mm-hmm. yeah definitely like I've, I, I I I definitely agree you know I've I've made the most of my life so far you know I've I've um I've done a lot of studying which I've really enjoyed and I've had quite a few jobs and different careers and things which I have really enjoyed but I know especially looking back on my experience today I know that if I'd had maybe a little bit more support earlier on in my in my history I could have got a lot more out of mm-hmm. out of my life, out of the experiences that I've had. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, first question. It's pretty broad. Um, but what was your relationship with food and your body like when you were growing up? Okay. So I think this is it's a little bit complicated, um, and it's one that I've been thinking a lot about um, a lot more um, in recent years. Definitely. Um, I think as a as a really young child, sort of, you know. Um, three, four, five, and six. My my relationship with food and my body was was pretty neutral. I remember really enjoying food and really loving food. And at, you know, within my family, I was um, I don't have any siblings, but I've got you know a cousin that I'm quite close to and things. And compared to him, certainly I you know I loved food. We would if we went out for a meal, I'd be really excited, and you know there'd always be kind of my favourite things on the menu that I'd be looking forward to having, and I loved sweet things I loved you know chocolate cake and all that kind of stuff um so for those sort of formative years it was quite quite a positive relationship actually and quite um neutral um but when I was I suppose when I was about five six and I and I think 
from certainly from teaching um i know that about that kind of age is when um children become a little, a little bit more um self-conscious and self-aware and the sort of comparison side of things creeps in and i think for me that is maybe when things started to shift and change because i know that i, I yeah i became a lot more a lot more self-aware but in a in a kind of anxious way and in a, in a, in a, had a negative impact on me and I started to see my body as something that wasn't there was something about it that wasn't right um or that was was different from you know my peers from um my friends um and my family as well um it was yeah but the the, the difference was something that I started to internalize as something just being not right um and that kind of um got worse as I grew and, and I got older um, and it did definitely start to have an impact on my relationship with food as well because I I just became a lot more conscious of you know how my body moved and how that was different from other people around me um, and I and I just remember having this kind of pervasive um, or prevailing anxiety about my body being um yeah like I've said being wrong but also it became that kind of morphed into a fear of gaining weight as I as I kind of got into my early teens because growing up I hadn't been able to move around the same as other children um so there was there was just this underlying fear of of, of weight gain and my body kind of looking a way that I don't know that wasn't right in some way if that makes sense yeah do you think the shift in terms of it going towards like weight as well it's just I have this conversation a lot on the podcast just about general society and just being exposed to all those messages about um body shape and weight or for you it was very much about how your body was functioning yeah so I I think um I have written a couple of blog posts about mm-hmm. this experience, but growing up from the age of two, I've had um, I've had quite a lot of medical appointments and surgeries and uh, treatments and assessments and things like that. Um, and I don't know if it's still the case now, but certainly when I was growing up, um, the language that you're exposed to as someone going through those procedures and those appointments is a lot um, to do with is, is correctional language quite often. So it's 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 things around fixing, correcting, um, moving properly, walking properly, doing things like everybody else, being the same as everybody else. Um, and I know that, you know, you have to describe things, you know, you have to, language is how we communicate. They had to, especially, you know, I was a young child. Um, so you, you have to find a way to say, to say things. And I know that there are certain limitations within that, but um, as time went on, I kind of internalised that language. And that is kind of one of the ways that I came to understand my body as something that was just wrong and that needed fixing and correcting. Um, and that really had a big impact on yeah, how, how I saw it and how, um, how, I felt about, how I felt about it, but also how I felt about the way it moved through the world as well. Yeah, that's quite powerful. It's like language does have such a big effect, doesn't it? Like they're almost, you're at that stage when you're starting to make the comparisons and they're almost reinforcing those for yeah. you with those words and that language. Um, did you generally like like school and stuff? It was just that feeling of, of being different. Um, yeah, I did. I've, I've always been, um, so from a very kind of young age, I've always been quite academic. I've done so much studying in my life um, and you know ever since sort of yeah reception I remember really enjoying school really um, you know I've always had um, I've never really had a problem kind of making friends and that kind of stuff so I did really enjoy um, that side of things but again similar to um, the relationship with my body about the age around the age of like five or six is where um, as I mentioned I started to understand my body as you know something that was that was different and that 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 difference was wrong in some way and um the school system as as it was and as a lot of it I know still is um it's a very very um 
I don't know whether ableist is, is the right word, but um, there's certainly a lot of measurement um, going on in an academic sense, but also in a, in a physical sense, you have to tick certain boxes and um, fit in in certain ways and do certain things. And, and just the whole environment um, became, the older I got, became uh, quite a difficult place to be for me. Um, it was, you know, I, I felt a lot of the time like I was having to keep up um, with with my peers um, and, you know, do everything. And I really, I really wanted to, because all at that age, you know, from, I don't know, from the age of about five, all I really wanted was to kind of fit in with those around me and be able to sort of join in and do everything that they were doing. But the older I got, um, the more difficult that became just because, you know, the demands on, on children, you know, they get, um, they increase, don't they, with, with age. Um, so even just things like moving around the school and, you know, joining in things like PE or, I don't know, cooking or whatever it might be, um, you know, there were things like that that I, that I did find quite difficult. And that was a really difficult, that, I think that became the start of a difficult relationship for, um, for me because in a lot of ways there wasn't necessarily um, the right support in mm -hmm. place. Um, that maybe looking back um, now, you know, and as an adult, I can see, you know, that things should have been done or um, put in place that, that just weren't. So it made it quite difficult for me in various ways. But um, overall, I, you know, I did, I did really enjoy that time. It just, in certain ways, it compounded um, the sense that I already had in my mind that, I don't know, that I was different and my experience was different. Um, and that was quite difficult. Yeah. Yeah, when you were saying about the comparisons, one of the first things you said, then I was thinking even like the weighing in schools as well, all these measurements and then almost ranking yeah. children or they you kind of get all these ideas um, about how your body is. And I don't think I've ever met anyone who hasn't um, thought like I'm different, even based mm -hmm. on that, even if we could put them in a box and say, you have got the most stereotypical body that functions this mm -hmm. way, that the most stereotypically perfect in inverted commas. Mm -hmm. I think that person would, obviously I, I'm not trying to say your experience isn't different, but I think that person would still feel mm -hmm. different. And like, yeah, this ranking system, I'm sure they have their reasons for doing it, but I don't think it's always the most helpful. Like you say, especially if you are on either side of that, whatever they're saying is normal. Um, yeah thing and the other thing I was thinking when you were talking was like sometimes as well it's that difficult situation of like you need some support but you don't know what's available as support so you don't know to ask for support and then yeah. you just kind of stay stuck because you almost don't know what you don't know could be yeah. there available for you yeah exactly definitely I think for me um especially you know in primary school um so when I was you know really quite young I looking back now I know what I could have asked for or I know what could have been been put in place maybe but at the time I just I had like you say I had no idea I didn't know I didn't know what what I didn't know I didn't know what I needed um and I and I maybe didn't know how to articulate it as well mm. and um certainly looking back now I, I think it is difficult for schools um and you know for education providers but it shouldn't, the, the responsibility shouldn't fall on the child always mm. to articulate um, their needs because, you know, as we're, we're just saying, sometimes you don't know what they are. Um, and equally for me, I, um, I, don't, I don't know if this is an experience that, that many people relate to, but for me, um, sort of growing up, going through primary school um, and secondary school, really, I was just so conscious that I, I wanted to fit in. And I wanted to, as much as possible, be like everyone else and do everything that everybody else was doing. Um, so if there, you know, even if I had necessarily been able to identify, um, you know, additional needs or additional supports that that um, might have been able to be put in place, I was quite resistant of that. Mm -hmm. I was quite resistant of of making myself stand out any more than I already was. You know, I wanted to just be normal, have everything that everyone else had, nothing extra, nothing special. Um, and, you know, looking back now, I'm just, that makes me quite angry. And I, I wish I could sort of go back and give my younger self a bit of a hug and a bit of a like, no, come on, just, this is your life, you know, make it as, make it as accessible and easy for yourself as you can. Like you don't need to just fit into a box because that's what the world is telling you. But obviously, you know, as a child, you, you, know, you don't know that. Or you just think about 
you know how you feel in the moment and a lot of the time for me that was yeah I just want to be like everyone else yeah that's such a good point actually sometimes it's almost like a double-edged sword if you don't get the help then you possibly can't um interact in that activity or the thing the same way as you could have done with the help but then I think a slightly different example um but some of my clients is from board generalization um but some of them have like say had um additional support and exams for like dyslexia or something but then that's made them think oh now I've got to go in a special room and have this additional port and now everyone knows almost there's something wrong with me in inverted commas yeah but it's like if I don't have that support then I might not get the grade on the exam that I want to go to university but if I do then there's this so I suppose it is about weighing the pros and cons or helping the individual to change their mindset around that support Um, definitely yeah I think I think now as an adult I can I can confidently say you know it's your life you have to put yourself first if you (laughs) don't put yourself first in your own life like nobody else is going to and you know as I said if I could go back and tell my younger self anything now it would probably be that because (laughs) it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks it doesn't matter if you feel you know you're you're singled out for something or something's a little bit different for you if that's what you need that's what you need and that's absolutely okay and as you say um without certain supports people might not be able to achieve things that could you know it could affect the outcome of their entire life so in that sense there's really not much else that's kind of more important than that um but in the moment I suppose and especially when you're when you're young when you're a child or a teenager it's really really difficult sometimes impossible to have to have that foresight because you just mm-hmm. you just you're just so caught up in the moment and whatever feels most important to you and a lot of the time that won't be oh well you know if I don't have this thing then I might not be able to go to the university that I want to go to because it, it all just feels very very far away um but yeah I think it's definitely something that as I'm as as I've got older I'm you know I'm very very aware of you know and I and this is why I think um, I'm so passionate now about advocating for yourself because like I say if you don't if you if you don't do it if you don't speak up for yourself you know nobody else is going to yeah when you said like I remember when I was in year seven and I thought the year 11s were like so old <laughs> yeah. I was like they're like grown-ups <laughs> I still don't feel like a grown-up now I'm actually a grown-up <laughs> yeah. yeah I remember I remember feeling the same when I was about five about my my cousin was nine and I remember just thinking that she was ancient. Yeah. Now looking back, that's just, <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Yeah, I really yeah. relate to that. So um, you said that actually you didn't get an official diagnosis of an eating disorder for like more than a decade into when these struggles were happening. So I wonder, like, looking back, what were the first indications for you that maybe something was going on around your relationship with food? Um, so as I mentioned um, before, I think from the age of about six or seven, I, I started to, um, my, my relationship with food and my body started to change. And I, I started to see food as something that you shouldn't want and something that, that should be or is associated with guilt. Um, and um, that kind of it grew and grew and intensified um, as I got older. Um, but it wasn't until I went to university um, for the first time for my undergrad um, that that kind of really took a turn in in the form of restriction. Um, and I remember um, I remember being I mean, you know, everybody would be, wouldn't they? You go to university, it's a new environment, new people, everything's new and unfamiliar. I remember feeling very, very anxious. Um, you know, my first kind of few days, week there, whatever it was. And I remember being in, in my flat in my first year on the first night and, um, you know, preparing this food um, in this shared kitchen with these people that I didn't know. And it was just, the whole thing just felt horrible to me. Um, and I remember sitting down for this meal and that was when for the first time in, in such a clear and profound way that something my brain just said, no, mm-hmm. just don't eat that just don't eat that, throw it in the bin. Um, That was the first time that it had appeared quite so obviously. And it was very much, um, it was very much saying to me, this will, this will help you. This is, this is the thing, this is the thing to do, this will help. 
this will make it all okay this will get rid of the anxiety this is you know and I didn't think too far down the line I didn't think to question that I didn't Mm -hmm. think well how how is throwing this pizza in the bin gonna help me feel okay you know I just I didn't question it I just I just did it and um it just kind of it just kind of morphed on from there really um in terms of in terms of using restriction as a way to cope and as a way to make sense of things when things felt out of control and chaotic and when I I suppose when I felt maybe that that I didn't fit in um or that something was difficult or stressful or traumatic or whatever it was um something in my brain had kind of presented this this magical solution to me and um you know as is often the case in the early stages of an eating disorder it really worked Mm. um it really worked and it wasn't it wasn't you know until I suppose almost a year into that that things really started to get like you know there were negative consequences to that but yeah in the early stages um that's kind of when it first sort of reared its ugly head yeah Um, can I just jump in one second I think this is such a good example obviously I understand there's other things that were going on at the time but just one is such a good example of eating disorders as a coping mechanism Mm. to help with emotions because I think there's so many misconceptions of people that don't know about eating disorders like oh the person's just trying to get really thin and then you know kind of they're self-obsessed or something but actually for a lot of people it is about the food and it isn't about the food in this case you're saying it's actually your brain said oh you're going to be less anxious if you do this and um kind of related question I'm just wondering for you if you don't mind um mm-hmm. answering like for you what's the experience of those thoughts sometimes people say it almost sounds like a separate voice or it's kind of the separate thing that they can mm-hmm. tell is really different from their own like voice and thoughts it's kind of presenting yeah. these ideas did it feel like the same or different to you do you know what people um especially in treatment um as mm-hmm. you say often talk about hearing a voice or you know people will say you know is, is the voice loud today is it is it really hard today you're struggling is it is it the voice and for me I've always really struggled with that mm-hmm. with that analogy um or with that um sort of comparison because for me it appeared in my head really out of the blue as I said in a way that it, it never had before um but it was very much it it wasn't my voice because uh, it wasn't it's not like you know you'd hear it in your head in an echo sort of way but it appeared as a thought mm-hmm. um in the same way that any of the rest of my thoughts might appear and it appeared to me as believable and as true as mm-hmm. yeah um I don't know like looking at the clock and seeing that it's two o'clock or something mm-hmm. you know you, you look at that and you don't question it you just think okay that's the time and then you go about your day based on that information you don't sit there and think hang on no that's completely wrong mm-hmm. you just just accept it because it's it just appears to you as a thought that there's no reason why you should question it so yeah for me it it doesn't it doesn't um in terms of sort of describing it as a voice I I wouldn't necessarily I, you know I do sometimes just for ease and um mm. you know convenience I will say that if I if, if it's relevant um but for me it's it it, it started off and, it, and it's still um appears just as just as any other thought that I might have in my mind yeah sometimes that makes recovery trickier because I know I didn't really get a a voice voice but it was sometimes like the thought felt like it's at the back of my head almost if there was like some weird ghost like hovering over the back of my head like that's Mm. where the thought was coming from so I would know it's kind of not me it's kind of the thing um or sometimes people get this sense of like oh okay that's the eating disorder thought which makes it easier to be like like you said notice yeah. oh that's the illogical part but if mm. it I've had clients who it seems so in your voice that like you say you just believe it yeah. as a true thought so yeah. thank you for sharing that that was really insightful I like the way you mentioned about it feels like if you just look at the clock like I've yeah. actually not heard anyone describe it like that I might take that <laughs> take that yeah. away with me from this episode yeah. I, I think that's a good way of describing how how powerful it can be mm-hmm. but also how true it is and and, and I sort of uh, another way of kind of describing this might be in terms of um you know if you're having a bad body image day and you're and you're um thinking all sorts of um they call it in therapy a lot don't they negative self-talk mm-hmm. so if you've got a lot of those negative thoughts going around in your head um when they appear in this way 
it is just like they're true and, and yeah so just like I said looking at looking at the time or any other thought looking at looking at the date and realizing oh yeah it's a Friday whatever you know you don't question that you just you just take it as fact. I do have a slight I'm not sure what the word is but actually I go on all the time about thoughts are not facts even that thought um, it's a Friday it's only a Friday because we've all agreed it's a Friday that is true so is it true or is it not true who knows we could still have a debate mm, about yeah. it yeah that's really that's really interesting actually because one of the um I read a book not too long ago um it's called New Beliefs New Brain by um a lady called Lisa Wimberger I don't know if you've heard of it it's not a um it's not specifically about eating disorders or anything um but in that, she talks about the idea of um, the mind as a storyteller. So um, just, yeah, the idea that in our minds all the time, we, we tell ourselves stories about um, the world, about what sort of place it is, about ourselves, what sort of person we are, what we're capable of, what we're not capable of. And that those stories inform uh, the course of our lives. They inform our thoughts, our actions, our behaviours, and therefore, you know, what happens to us really um, and she talks about how um, some elements of, of those stories and of that narrative, you know, they obviously come from um, our experience, our interactions, you know, places we've been to, people we've met, conversations we've had, um, whatever. But by and large, they come from within. Um, and so from that perspective, um, kind of like you said about, you know, time or the day as a concept, um, they are something you know that we that we've subscribed to but also something that we can change which mm-hmm. I find um, it's a really interesting concept and just really powerful because yeah it's just I guess it's it's really empowering to think that you have that much control if you, if you choose to believe it you can have that much control mm-hmm. over you know the outcome of your life so yeah yeah my other favorite one I swear I always say the same things all the time um, but it's like I don't know what example to use in this because sometimes I'm children don't listen now it's like (laughs) you probably used to believe in Santa and when you're little that's very true you're like okay he's gonna come tonight he's gonna give me all my presents like you have Mm -hmm. no reason not to believe it because all the adults and older children are telling you oh Santa's coming like leave a cookie for Santa and stuff and then you realize oh actually I've got some evidence now that it's not true or you start to think, how can you get around the world? Hmm, like, do I believe in that much magic? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then you can change your beliefs. So sometimes even thinking about small beliefs that you've managed to change mm. actually helps you think, ah, maybe I can, well, I can change my beliefs in principle and I could do it about this bigger thing yeah. that feels true now as well. Yeah, exactly. I saw you posted on your Instagram, I think the other day about, um, you know, you used to be scared of the dark. Mm-hmm. And now you're not. So it, you could change your belief in a similar way about, I think it was about weight gain or mm-hmm. about body image. Um, and that was really, that was really interesting as well, because it's, it seems so simple, doesn't it? It seems so simple. And that is looking back on our lives, you know, okay, not everyone is scared of the dark, but most children are or definitely scared of something, whether it's monsters under the bed, whatever it is, we've all got things that, you know, looking back probably used to terrify us. And now we don't even think about them anymore. And it's really, um, I guess it's really hopeful and inspiring to think um, that that could be the same for um, an eating disorder thought or a belief or whether it's body image or something else. Yeah, it's funny when you look from the outsider perspective as well, not like haha laughing funny, but just funny in that, do you know if you are fine with flying, but someone's like, I'm terrified of flying. Yeah. You could be like, why are you terrified of flying? Kind of the same way that people. Yeah, like have. that's so silly. Like you've got no reason to be. And it's yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of how um it affects me um on a daily basis, it just means now um that I have to do um uh a physio routine um twice a day, sort of once in the morning, once in the evening, um, just to sort of keep my muscles as sort of flexible and supple as possible um and it is the case that you know if I don't do that um you know the tension and things will build up and build up build up and I've had kind of consultants in the past say to me you know if you you were to stop doing your physio you know if you were to cut out completely you would end up 
um, you wouldn't be able to walk, you'd, you'd end up in a wheelchair. So it is a really, you know, it's a really kind of fundamental, um, necessary thing. Um, and I suppose in the lead up to um, going into inpatient treatment for my eating disorder, I, I mean, you know, I'm sure you can kind of appreciate, you know, I wasn't in the best place physically or, or mentally. Um, and I suppose now looking back in, in hindsight, um, there are certainly, you know, maybe sort of certain measures that I should have put in place or at least, um, you know, things that I should have maybe said. I, I mean, I definitely, before going into, into treatment, you know, I obviously disclosed my disability and I did kind of say how it affected me. And, and I did say, you know, how, how it affected me um, in, in relation to my eating disorder as well. Um, but, you know, I suppose hindsight is a wonderful thing in terms of um, making sure you've got you've got kind of everything that you could possibly need. Um, and as it was, um, um, when I was, uh, you know, in the inpatient unit, um, and I know I know this is the case with I think pretty much all of them. You know, they but they restrict movement to such an extent that you know you're told off, off if you stand up for more than twenty seconds at one time. You know, I um, for me personally, I wasn't um, I wasn't allowed outside at all for nine weeks. Um, I think generally, I think obviously it depends on your your weight and your physical condition. But I think generally it's, it's about a month. But I know for me. Um, they weren't really sure how to deal with me in terms of my disability, despite, you know, me kind of knowing my own body and, you know, telling them um, they kind of, they, they were a bit wary, I think, and a little bit worried. Um, so yeah, they sort of, they sort of kept me, kept me inside for nine weeks, weeks but which was um, certainly a difficult experience. Um, yeah, it's really difficult because I'm thinking what you said earlier, I think, you know, in terms of you've got very valid points that you're saying, actually, I need this because otherwise I could end up in a wheelchair. But also, like you said, an eating disorder, sometimes you give it an inch, it takes a mile. Yeah. They're probably used to people telling them a whole bucket load of things. Completely. And so it's such a fine line to find actually what is best for someone's physical and mental health yeah. in this situation. Completely. And I think, I think as well, you know, and I, I, um, as I said, you know, when, when most people go into an inpatient unit, they're not in the best place mentally or physically. And I think, like you said, it is a really fine line because, you know, if someone's going, if you, if you go into a, um, a treatment facility and you're, you know, crying over a yogurt or whatever, or you're at the stage where I was before I went in, I, I was terrified of toothpaste mm. um, because my brain, you know, I had, I had convinced myself that it had too many calories in or whatever it was, you know, so if someone is in that place mentally then and then but they're in in another breath they're saying oh well I need I need to do this exercise mm. I need to exercise obviously um you know any treatment provider is going to be like hang on a second like no which you know which part of you is talking is it really yeah. you or is it is it your eating disorder I completely understand that um especially you know in the early days um and and particularly as well if someone um struggles with compulsive exercise because I, I even when I had to ask to be to um to sort of be able to do to do my physio I almost wanted to laugh as I was saying it because I just thought it just sounds so absurd mm. and there is this person who struggles with compulsive exercise to the point where you've locked her out of her bedroom so that she doesn't do it but then she's asking to do, to do exercise and, and for you to sanction that I, I completely understand how difficult that is um but it was never really addressed. You know, I even said, I guess, as, as the treatment progressed and I, I struggled more and more with just sitting down, effectively just sitting in a chair for 14 hours a day. Um, and I was getting more and more tense. And then I was getting more and more muscle spasms, which obviously are painful the longer that they go on for. Um, you know, and as it kind of built up and built up, I, I was saying, look, even just let me speak to my GP or let me yeah. speak to somebody get like I, I'm not expecting you to take my word for it like, I understand that this is difficult um but this is really this really is something that I need this is not my eating disorder talking now mm. it's me and even at that point they weren't um they weren't willing to to do that yeah. I think that's to do with you know obviously they you sign up to a treatment program when you go into somewhere like that and there are certain there are certain restrictions and certain limitations um which I completely understand 
But I think um, looking back now, I do think that um, a lot of the treatment programmes, um, certainly, I don't know about other countries, but certainly in the UK, they're based on what I would say is, is very much a one size fits all model. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know that that's inevitable and I understand, you know, the, the limitations that are there and how stretched, um, you know, the country is in terms of the resources that, that they can provide. Um, but it is very much a one size fits all model. And if for whatever reason you do not fit that box, um, for them to then not be willing to, to make any modifications or adjustments for you, um, it just seems really really quite punitive um there were certainly um some sort of consequences and implications for me while I was there and some that I'm sort of still dealing with now that I'm out um but just in general in terms of the overall effectiveness of a treatment program you know if you're not if you're not um if allowances aren't being made or modifications aren't being made just to make things more bearable and things more accessible um, you know, how can someone be expected to, to make progress um, within within a programme? It's something that I, yeah, I really struggled with while I was yeah. there. Yeah, it almost sounds like as well, like, how can I respect you if you're not respecting me Completely. and my needs in this situation? And just for like, I get what you're saying as well. There is this one size fits all model because of funding and this and that. And this is what's evidence based. But actually... Yeah not everyone fits for whatever mm. reason that might be if there is something physical or a different um coexisting diagnosis as well so having that I mean some service possibly do maybe they would say it's because of covid I'm not sure um mm. but having that flexibility to make it more patient-centered yeah actually would have so many benefits for both sides because you're probably gonna have a better treatment outcome not need to go back Definitely. happy days for everyone exactly and and for me personally I um I suppose this is something I haven't haven't touched upon yet, but my eating disorder is incredibly it's it's very much linked to my body and my relationship with my body, and just this kind of underlying sort of belief that that I have um, that I just feel that as we as we've talked about that that my body is in some way wrong, um, but also that that it's let me down, mm. and so that that is a huge thing in terms of my eating disorder and and what keeps it going and so to be to be in the situation that I was in 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 that inpatient um treatment it just compounded all over again the sense that I have of my body that it's that it's wrong and that it's letting me down um and yeah it, it really you know I don't want to say that it made things made things worse because I you know I can't say that for certain but it it definitely didn't help um and I suppose from a in terms of the provision that that is there um for for me certainly but for anyone really you know there was no um there was no attempt to support people to to rebuild their relationship with their body um and i mean i mean that in terms of body image but i also mean that in terms of movement and exercise um and as i said i understand like in the early days of treatment when you're really you know when you're at a very low weight or you know you're really quite unwell I understand the point of kind of cutting movement out cold turkey but I think after a month or so there comes a point where um you should certainly be looking to address that relationship mm -hmm. and to rebuild it and to think about what might be a healthier relationship and how you can um how you can look to achieving that for yourself um, and that's certainly you know, wasn't done for me. And as I say, it wasn't done for anyone else. So in terms of coming out of a unit um, and looking to get yourself into the best place possible, I think, um, yeah, the relationship with, with your body and with exercise is something for everybody that, you know, is really, really important and would be really valuable. But certainly for me as well, because I, you know, I couldn't cut exercise out of my life cold turkey you know I've always had to do this physio and I still yeah do um and because you know I, they sort of effectively stopped me from doing it it's meant that I've come out and I've just had to sort of try and repair that relationship myself um and when it's the same sort of exercise routine that I've been doing for years and years like that is unfortunately 
incredibly triggering as a routine mm-hmm. so it's it, it takes a, a, a hell of a lot of mental strength and work to to do that myself because I don't have you know I haven't got anyone who can help me with that that you know they, it's not something that they did in that unit as I say and on the outside I don't I don't have anyone that, that can kind of help me with that so it's something I've had to address on my own um, which as I say has been incredibly difficult and still is and that is one of the huge reasons for me kind of reaching out to you to talk about this because when I was in um, in the treatment program I and you know I was struggling with this and I and I, I knew that you know they were going to take what I said with a pinch of salt certainly I knew I had to back myself up you know I, I knew I had to come at them with some evidence because fair enough they were going to say no 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 you were not letting the girl mm-hmm. who struggles with compulsive exercise do exercise no like you know I understand that so I was sort of trying to arm myself with some evidence and there just wasn't really any you know I think this is what you mentioned at the beginning um there's very little research into the relationship uh, between eating disorders and um, physical disabilities. There's, there's really not very much around at all. And um, that's something that, it, it really shocked me when I found that out at the time, it really surprised me. Um, because, you know, if there had been, I certainly wouldn't have ended up in the situation that I did. You know, if there was something I could kind of call upon and say, look, I'm not the only person that's been in this situation. Like, this is how you deal with it. This is what I need. Um, yeah, so I think if that had, if there'd been something like that around, um, it, it certainly would have been a very different situation for me. Yeah, thank you again for sharing your story on that. It does sound incredibly difficult, like you say, and then you popped out, not popped out, that's my, my word. you popped out of the treatment. Um, <laughs> and then, like you say, not had that, um plan or support in place um to really secure that recovery mm-hmm. I think it is so difficult in terms of like the practicalities of like more research even do you know because there's so many possible things mm-hmm. that need so much research that I think it's really, really good that we can open up the conversation say look here's some more important things to put on your agenda um yeah. to start researching because this is how it's impacting people's lives mm-hmm. on a day-to-day and then in terms of like, I guess, private practice, how I, I don't think I would have taken you as a client, considering how you were struggling in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but other clients that might be struggling, I suppose private practices do have more flexibility to think, how is this impacting on the eating disorder? So maybe that's movement just in terms of someone can't do cooking mm-hmm. for themselves or something. But how would we work around that? Yeah, in a way that can, like you say, help physical and mental health um I actually thought you know when you contacted me um about this like it's almost really difficult for treatment providers as well because there's so many possible other comorbidities mm-hmm. that they're like I can't know everything about everything if that makes sense yeah completely so it is somehow that they need this mechanism to be more flexible mm. rather than just rigid but the reason for that flexibility person to person will be a bit different if that makes sense yeah completely and I you know I really do understand that um I know I know that you know as I said um a bit earlier on you know I know that there's a reason why these treatment programs are based on a one size fits all model because they have to be they're so stretched and you know it's just it's just impossible for them to say yeah okay we're going to have a completely tailored approach that, that you know meets the needs of absolutely everybody um I completely understand that I really do but I do think that um in terms of how rigid they are as you say there are there are things that that they could have done um <laughs> you know even in, in my in my case I suppose to say you know no you, you can't even contact your GP and get a recommendation like that is something that that shouldn't really have happened because that's me that's taking me and my my um mental illness and any demands it might be making on me out of the equation because it's it's going to sort of a third party who would also be you know a medical professional um but I just yeah I think in terms of obviously I know know that there are restrictions I know that there are limitations and that's probably always going to be the case um but just in terms of the way that um I think treatment models look at at patients, the way that they communicate with patients and treat patients. Um, 
in my experience anyway and obviously you know I can only speak from my experience and I'm you know I'm not saying that that every place is like this and it's always going to be like this but in my experience it was very much they just treated the eating disorder mm-hmm. and and um I understand that that's the point of the treatment but it it just it just compounds the sense that you might have in your mind that the eating disorder is all you are in terms of yourself and your identity well that's just all you are that's all you amount to they don't um just because of the approach that that the treatment model that the treatment models take they don't look at the whole person it's not very holistic so you know and i think for for any treatment model and treatment program to be to be the most effective would be to to look at the whole person to take a much more holistic approach and to think okay yes they have an eating disorder but you know what keeps this going for them what other aspects of their <laughs> life are fueling this and keeping it going because for me personally my disability is it is that you know it's 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 incredibly as i said before it's incredibly um tied up with my eating disorder um you know to the point where you know i don't even know i wouldn't even know how to kind of extract the two so to try and treat an eating disorder without treating the thing that's kind of fueling it and always has and always will do unless it's unless it's tackled is, is really really difficult and that's obviously my situation but I think that's the case for anybody you know um so I think yeah the most I know this is in an ideal world but I think the most effective way of approaching it is to look at the whole person um you know every aspect of them um in terms of um looking at the eating disorder and kind of why why it came about and what keeps it going and how you can kind of think about um finally kicking it to the curb I suppose yeah I know my one-to-ones we do a lot of like let's look at the past but also let's look at the present what coping mechanisms can you have now let's look to the future what do you want your life to look like and obviously try and take that more holistic approach because I have the benefit of being private practice so I can (laughs) so I can have more flexibility and do that but it sounds like even in this situation even if you didn't have those other things Mm. which are I also feel important for full sustained recovery even Mm. if you've just been acknowledged as a person like you say a person separate from your illness and almost had some understanding yeah and I'm sure if they were here, whoever the people were, would say, look, this is our procedure. This is our reason for not contacting the GP. But even if you'd had that respect, yeah, when you were asking to say, okay, yeah, let's bring this other third party who's almost kind of independent yeah. medical opinion on this, even if that mm-hmm. had been done, yeah, that would have caused less harm, if that makes sense. Completely. Um, because I think you know and I don't know I don't know why that was I don't think it's really necessarily relevant because it might have just been a case of resource or time or whatever or you know obviously they have to they start bending the rules for one person then someone will find out about that and it'll never end well it's like completely I do understand but it definitely it was quite dehumanizing it was quite dehumanizing kind of along the lines of you know when people say oh that's just your eating disorder talking Mm. you know and I, I understand that in some situations that might be the case and you know certain people I suppose I'm sure it's happened to me you know there are times when even the person themselves will be able to call themselves out and say look yeah okay that was that was a real like eating disorder thought or that was really motivated by my eating disorder but there's something you know certainly in my situation it's not um it's not the same as me me just kind of inventing an issue and saying oh well, actually no this is really causing me problems and I'm, I'm really it's making it really difficult Everything I was going to say that this is a pre-existing condition since you were born and you've been doing this routine yeah, yeah. just in the interest of time um what would you say to someone who came to you and said I just want to eat normally oh that's interesting don't we all <laughs> um oh I would say I would say do you know what? Actually, in the last few days, I'm feeling a lot more motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, in terms of my recovery, but I guess everything in general. So I would say, I would say that it's possible. I would say it definitely is possible. And I would say, as with most things, there are you know there are ups and downs. Um, you know there are good days and bad days. 
Um, but I would say it's definitely possible and it's definitely something to, to work towards and to aim for. I suppose there's always the argument that, you know, what is normal? Who <laughs> says what normal is, you know? Um, but I think, I think anybody who's experienced, um, whether it's an eating disorder or disordered eating, you're very aware if your relationship with food and eating is is not normal you're very aware and that's often you know because of um the amount of distress that it causes you and, and the degree to which it impacts your life um but yeah in terms of um somebody sort of saying that they wanted to eat normally at the moment I would, I'm I'm feeling very motivated and I would just say yeah I think it is it's possible it is possible you just have to kind of take the good with the bad and just keep going Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, where can people find you if they want to connect more? Um, oh, yeah. Firstly, thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely to chat to you. Um, so I, um, when I was in inpatient treatment, I started a blog um, about my recovery journey. So that is the main place um, that people can find me if they want to follow my journey. Um, it's just a WordPress um, blog. Um, it's called Pink Sparkly Beads um so uh yeah I'll share the links with you um mm -hmm. I've also got an Instagram account um a recovery Instagram account which I'm quite active on and um on Twitter as well amazing thank you thank you Thank you for listening to the Just Eat Normally podcast I hope you found this enjoyable interesting and insightful and informative and if you did make sure to subscribe to hear the next episode and just remember that you can check out the show notes for contact details and extra resources.